This program is presented by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Hello, I'm Sarah Gregory, and today I'm talking with Dr. Edward Anand, an equine veterinarian epidemiologist and a research associate at the University of Sydney School of Veterinary Science in Australia. We'll be discussing the detection of a novel Hendra virus variant from a horse in Australia. Welcome, Dr. Anand. Thanks very much for having me, Sarah. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. I've actually, um, you're my first Australian guest, so I'm quite excited to have you here. Lots of things going on here in this study of yours. Um, so let's start with a real basic. What is Hendra virus? This is new, right? Well, it's a, it's a paramyxovirus. So that's the same family as, as sort of measles and mumps and also uh, uh, Newcastle disease, say, in chickens. And, and the, the genus is the Hennipa virus genus. So they, the Hendra virus is, is, may, may seem a little new, and we do think of it as an emerging disease, uh, but I think it might be more appropriate to, to think of that, that, that word emerging as relating to our understanding, not so much the virus. It's very likely an ancient virus um, that has co-evolved with flying foxes. And they seem to have an incredible capacity to, to live with uh, Hendra virus and many other paramyxoviruses. Uh, whereas when Hendra virus spills over into domestic animal species and then uh, unfortunately sometimes also into humans as well, it, it is uh, highly fatal. All right, so emerging, but been around for a long time, recognized as emerging. Uh, when was it first recognized? So Andrew virus was first recognized uh, when it spilled over into some thoroughbred racehorses in 1994. And uh, a very good friend of mine, Dr. Peter Reed, who's also uh, one of our co-authors on the paper, was the attending veterinarian in 94 in Hendra, which is a suburb of uh, Brisbane and a really lovely suburb near the river and a, a very unique uh, suburb where they, they sort of this culture of training the racehorses from almost from sort of backyard stables and uh, taking them down to the little beach uh, nearby and swimming them and passionate uh, horse owners wonderful horses have, have, have been raised and trained in Hendra. It was a, a mare uh, called Drama Series, incidentally enough, um, who had been spelling uh, or who'd been out in a, in a paddock uh, n n not within the city, uh, nearby. And then there'd been some flying foxes uh, frequenting the trees in that, that paddock. Uh, she developed the, the illness and was brought into to a stable and actually, there were 13 horses that died um, within a 12-hour period. And, and Peter sort of describes those horses as, as sort of having drowned in their own lung fluid. And so it was very spectacular for Peter and uh, also for our biosecurity and, and infectious disease departments because we had a, what appeared to be a, a highly contagious disease, especially when it's... Uh, uh, also affected a horse in the neighboring stable, um, and uh, it, it affected a strapper who became very ill, and unfortunately the trainer who died. So it was recognized that this, this was very likely a, a 
an infectious disease and something we hadn't seen or recognized before. And there was a big effort to, to, to work out what it was. And, and they ended up isolating a novel virus and originally called it an equine mobility virus. And it was, it was later uh, named the Hendra virus. And, and also um, the flying foxes were identified as that reservoir host and, and the source of the infection. So Hendra was actually the location, sort of like Ebola virus is named after the river. Yeah, so most viruses these days, that, or through time, have been named, I guess, after the location. A, a close relative uh, of, of Hendra virus in the Pararabula family is, is called Menangal virus, and also from Australian flying foxes. Uh, again, that's a, that's a suburb as well. So Hendra, the people of Hendra are a little bit sensitive, of course, to the name, but and, and they get it's, they, they prefer it to be called Hendra virus disease, not Hendra disease. <laughs> but yeah, that, that's where it started. And apparently, as you were saying, it it affects horses and predominantly. Um, why are horses more susceptible? So uh, this is really more theorized than 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 known for sure because uh, we don't know the perhaps the full range of species that this virus uh, might have affected uh, without us realizing. But the horses are the ones that have been the only species that, that have been uh, domestic animal species in which Hendra virus has been detected internationally. And I know um, there is Nipah virus which has affected pigs, and, and we can talk a bit more about that. Horses are very inquisitive animals and quite inquisitive in their grazing behavior. They have very well, like very sort of overdeveloped airway, upper airway spaces. They've got sinuses, guttural pouches, and, and so a lot of surface area of highly vascularized epithelium. And they have a very high tidal volume. So when they're, when they're going around grazing, they're sniffing in and out what, what they're about to, to eat to see if it's good or not. And then they also have a quite well-developed olfactory nervous system running down in, into the, to the front of their lip area there. And this is sort of been something that's involved when they do that flamen response. So those people have had horses, particularly stallions, after they smell a mare when she's in heat, they will flip the lip uh, up and and that's the flaming response so so there is a, a thought there that um, because Hendra virus is both neurotrophic and can be pneumotrophic which means uh, the first one is can infect the nervous tissue and the, the second one is you know can affect the respiratory tissue there is a sort of the two possible entry pathways for the virus it can it can enter via the respiratory system from having been inhaled uh, as a droplet uh, from, a, from a contaminated urine specimen on, on the ground there, or uh, it, it may also be able to track its way um, beginning in that, the, the epithelium of the, of the lip, you know, in, and of the, those olfactory areas in, in the upper airway system through, up through the, through the nerves system as well, and that's been shown with histology to be a, a, a possible pathway there as well. Uh, they are uh, also very closely monitored by their owners. So, you know, compared to a cow who's one of a herd or, or other, you know, sort of production animals, 
where you know the veterinarian may not be called for every every sick animal horses while they sometimes are run uh, very extensively and not not checked so so regularly uh, there are many horses that veterinarians attend regularly and many owners will, will even get a horse out more readily than they go to the doctor themselves. You know, so they're, they're, they're sort of the, the veterinarians uh, attending even for minor illnesses. And so there is a, perhaps a very, they're very appropriate sentinel species in, in that way. I see. Okay. So you've mentioned um, Nipah virus now a couple of times. What is Nipah virus? So Nipah virus is, very closely related to Hendra virus. It's similar enough that the uh, available vaccine, which was made for Hendra virus for horses um, and now is being uh, developed for humans, is cross-protective. And that, that vaccine targets the uh, G-glycoprotein, now called the receptor binder binding protein. Even though there's a, about only 70% similarity between the Hendra G glycoprotein, which is there, this, this protein is the way they attach into the cell, uh, and the Nipah virus G glycoprotein, the immunity that, that an immunized mammal get, gains is effective against both, both viruses. So they're that similar. They're also quite similar in their pathogenicity. They tend to cause the same range of, of disease manifestations, and they are both circulating in, in flying foxes and, and the flying foxes, so the teropid bats, the uh, teropid fruit bats, are the reservoir hosts for both viruses. So the biggest difference is where they are occurring. So uh, Nipah virus has been uh, identified spilling over uh, into pigs and to humans without a domestic animal intermediate host uh, via the, the date palm. And this has happened in, in Malaysia and Bangladesh. So the distribution of, of uh, we, we haven't detected Nipah virus in Australia, but we've got a sort of equivalent, or, you know, a, a similar virus that's so similar that that vaccine works in the same way. Um, that shows the same, same sorts of, same manifestations of disease. So it's really just their geographic distribution that, that's the difference there. I see. Okay. Yeah, I actually did a podcast on um, Nipah virus and the date palm trees um, and how they were infecting the sap being collected below it several years ago. These viruses sound like they're pretty deadly. Is that right? Yeah, they are considered, the, in a way, the most deadly uh, viruses uh, that, that we know of. Um, but it is, is, is sort of in an individual patient that, that becomes sick. In, in those that become uh, that become infected with these viruses, both horses and humans, they are they're they're highly uh, lethal. There's um, been recorded fatality rates ranging from sort of seventy percent to to even one hundred percent. But there is another. I think coronavirus, SARS coronavirus two, uh, perhaps even in comparison to SARS coronavirus one reminder that that how deadly a pathogen is also has to take into account how many how how contagious it is between humans and how and it's a bit of a balance so if you've got something that is really deadly then you tend to to detect it and it's you know and that and that's a 
and it doesn't doesn't uh, spread as far and, and as quickly. Um, and that was sort of the case for the SARS coronavirus one, whereas SARS coronavirus two, being much more mild, much more mild disease in the majority of people, uh, managed to spread across the world as we know too well. Um, and it's a little bit similar for for enterovirus. It's it, they are deadly, and they're they're a big concern for veterinarians, uh, that, that, and and for those in in at high risk. Um, but uh, perhaps uh, what would be even more deadly would be a a version of of these viruses that that that, that uh, we might discover one day that was even more transmissible and even perhaps slightly less deadly in the individual. I seem to remember with SARS-1 that that's that's basically why it died out so quickly because it was so deadly it killed off its hosts and didn't and wasn't so transmissible because it didn't have anywhere to move to. Is that is that sort of a fair assessment? Yeah, that that that's kind of what I was saying. That, that that's the idea there and um it's good to be reminded of that uh but but these hennipa viruses have been listed consistently in those top in the sort of top priority diseases along with highly pathogenic and avian influenza and SARS coronaviruses and Ebola viruses as global priorities and potentially pandemic uh, threats. But as we discussed, for Hendra virus or, or Nipah virus, the true pandemic threat would be a virus that was more transmissible. Um, in fact, the canine distemper virus is in the same family uh, and and quite closely related, uh, and it's an example of a virus that is more, uh, far more transmissible. Um, so something between Hendra and canine distemper virus, canine mobility virus would be, would be a, the, the, the ultimate threat, perhaps. When we talk about those, those fatality rates, say 70%, 80%, 100%, a lot of the time we won't detect the milder cases, particularly in an extensive outbreak. And, and sort of serology can, can help determine that, but it's always a challenge to, to determine the true fatality rate because it's always a challenge to, to know the true prevalence uh, of some of these outbreaks. In the case of Hendra, it's not so much a challenge because we tend to be right on, on top of it when we've detected it and can monitor all of the horses that are in, in contact. But nevertheless, it's clear that there will uh, in that first outbreak, there were 20% of those, those horses that, that didn't show severe disease and that but did seroconvert um, and so obviously had become infected. Mm, I see. Uh, okay, so what are, the, what are the symptoms? You talked about two different ways it can transmit earlier, but how does it manifest in a horse and is that the same or different than in people? So, yes, thanks, Sarah. We thought a lot about, about this as part of our research because it is, on recognizing the consistent the disease manifestations in the horse as being consistent with Hendra that enable the the detection, the testing, the laboratory confirmation. And without all of that, then the humans that are exposed will not receive uh, appropriate, uh, timely health care, including you know potentially life saving treatment. So we've tried to think a lot about it. We've looked at all of the the manifest the, the previous cases and and the symptoms that they showed, and what we've found is that they 
there is a lot of variation in in any one time point. So a lot of the times vets will look at horses and only have a small window to examine the horse. But what is consistent is the the manifestations through time. And and what tends to happen is that the horse becomes uh, very very depressed. It may have a high fever in that early stage. So in a way, it's kind of influenza-like symptoms without so much uh, of the runny nose. And then it will usually progress quite rapidly. It could be within that 12-hour period to overt respiratory manifestations, respiratory distress, and or uh, neurological sort of central nervous system encephalitic signs, including changes in the gait, head pressing, uh, even seizure, uh, nystagmus. Um, there's often a lot of sweating, and that's that's sort of what it's that's that's a typical progression of disease and including the changes in those sort of mucous membranes they become quite congested early on they might be a little bit injected we, we, we say which is when they have prominent vasculature and something we look at in the horse and in humans it's quite similar in that they have influenza-like illness early on usually progressing to encephalitic signs without so much of that overt uh, respiratory distress being being sort of reported. There are, of course, very few uh, cases. Uh, there's been seven cases of uh, confirmed hendra infection, of which four four have passed away, and and a number have been veterinarians. Sadly, so we we realise there is a, a large risk for veterinarians. You mentioned flying foxes. So horses are getting hendra virus um, from spillover from flying foxes. Tell us how that happens. So the flying foxes. As we mentioned earlier, sort of understood to have co-evolved with these viruses. And so that means that they live in dense communities when they're roosting. They have, of course, as being the bat being out, the only sort of flying mammals, they have very high metabolism. They are a sort of perfect place for RNA viruses to evolve. And they've evolved with the RNA viruses. So they... Uh, their own immunity, uh, immune systems have evolved in ways that we're only just un- trying, beginning to understand to sort of be very resilient against sort of severe disease or disease from, from these viruses. They tend to, with, with the former, formerly known Hendra virus, which we now call Hendra virus genotype 1, so before this discovery, there tended to be a seasonal trend. So sort of winter months and and there tended to be certain regions that were thought to be the predominant areas where we were going to expect spillover. But ultimately, it is a sporadic event. All we need to happen is for an infected deposit of urine to land into a paddock where there's a horse that is either not vaccinated or doesn't have appropriate immunity and that horse, to engage with that, as we discussed earlier, um, and usually smelling it or sniffing it in their, in their grazing, as part of their grazing behavior. And that's sort of what, what we need to happen. And that, that's in order to see infection in a horse. And, and that is very unpredictable as to exactly where that's going to happen. It's a sporadic event. And, uh, that is, uh, and it happens at relatively low frequency compared to other viruses. And yet it happens consistently. Uh, sporadically with low frequency, 
where we've seen more than 60 spillover events, uh, uh, um, resulting in more than 100 horse fatalities, since we've known about this virus. So it is a very big challenge to know that we are catching all those cases. We actually have been testing around about 1,000 suspect cases each year, but finding less than 1% have, have Hendra. And a lot of horse diseases can look a little bit similar to Hendra, particularly at, at a particular point in time. Even some non-infectious causes of disease, such as colic, uh, which, which is sort of acute abdominal disease, say from a twist of bowel, can result in horses staggering and changing uh, their mucous membranes and sweating a lot. And so it, it can be a really big challenge to decide when we think that Hendra might be involved and then to take the right samples to go through that process. And there's a fantastic response system set up where veterinarians and owners can get a, an answer, usually within a day. Sometimes it can take a bit longer, but the rapid sort of screening uh, turnaround to allow them to manage the human health risks and the biosecurity risks. And rapidity is very important because apparently this virus is, uh, it goes from zero to 60 very quickly is what I'm hearing, right? Right. So just the progression of disease in an unvaccinated animal, in an area where there are flying foxes, even if the veterinarian cannot perceive direct contact with flying foxes, sometimes it might not be, might not be obvious that they are on the same property. They may just be flying overhead or visiting a dam on the property and they might not be known to the veterinarian and sometimes not even to the owner. So we tend to try to err on the side of caution as veterinarians uh, and test test anything that's not, any case that is not vaccinated uh, but could be be a Hendra case, even if Hendra virus might not be our top top differential uh, at the time that we're looking at the horse. So flying foxes are not foxes, they're actually bats, yes? Right, so they are old world fruit bats or ropid fruit bats, their face is a little bit fox-like. And if anyone uh, finds them something that's not so nice to look at, it's very useful just to turn the photo around so that they are kind of there upside down, but they look kind of the right way up for us. And it's amazing how, how cute they look straight away, I think, to, to people that may have not found them so cute, uh, may have found them a little bit scary. I see. Okay. So, um, Horses are getting it from snuffling around in the grass where there's urine, most likely. How are the people getting it from the horses? Good question, Sarah. So all of the the known cases of Hendra have occurred where there's been significant exposure to bodily fluids or to sort of the respiratory excretion or even just that sort of close proximity of the human face to the airway of the horse. So when horses are ill, veterinarians often are obliged to perform pretty invasive procedures to, to help help them. It might be passing a nasogastric tube to, to administer fluid. It might be passing an endoscope to, to check for, for the respiratory function, upper respiratory function. It might be doing a rectal examination to check for colic. And it, especially if horses are staggering around there again there's a there can be a lot of, of fluid involved be it blood or excretion and it can be quite hard to to control that so veterinarians in areas that perceive a risk for hendra have been trained in both themselves applying personal protective equipment and biosecurity protocol but also in training their the owners 
on the spot in quarantine practice, safe biosecurity and personal protective equipment use as well. So when you're examining a horse, you're using PPEs, the vets? Right. In the perfect world, from a hendra virus point of view, we'd all have our PPE on every time we see a horse that even could conceivably have hendra. But as, as you can imagine, in the broad geography of Australia and some areas that are hot and dusty, uh, over 40 degrees Celsius in temperature sometimes, also busy veterinarians, stud veterinarians, we, we tend not to be in PPE as a, as a rule. So we have a, a concept of staged PPE, so we might always try to put on some gloves, particularly if we're going to look at, a, at an ill animal or if we're going to look at a vulnerable animal like a foal. And then the next stage up, we, you know, we're going to be putting on a mask as well. Overalls, another high-risk scenario is examining fetal loss, abortion. Uh, for, for zoonotic disease, we'll be using a higher tier of PPE. But for Hendra virus, it's our highest tier of PPE. When we feel that it could be the case, and as I say, we don't often realize that before we get there, we might not even realize it at the start of the examination. And sometimes we might not even realize it on the first examination. It may be a subsequent examination that where we realize it. But once we sort of pull that trigger of, of suspicion of that virus being involved, then we're going to put on the full, uh, what do they call it, hazmat suits, you know, the, the uh, goggles and the, and, the, and the mask and, and the gloves and take full precaution. And, and also we're sort of a little bit, min- we have to, minimize the, the treatments. And this is a very sad, actually, but we, we have to, we're very minimized then as to what we can do for the horse. We can't do all of those usual treatments that might be necessary or might really help. Um, and, and that's been a big issue, including well, issue for welfare, where uh, an issue for personal indemnity, uh, liability, and even, you know, there have been horses that have passed away for otherwise savable conditions because of the need to exclude the possibility of hendrovirus and, and that delaying the, the timeliness of treatment or restricting the range of treatment that can be afforded to the horse until we get the negative result. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah. So since hendra is, hendrovirus is so deadly, it seems that treatments and vaccines are rapidly in the works or there are some already. Um, how's that going? Tell us about that. Yeah, so the vaccine that we have we're very lucky to have a, a very effective vaccine for use in horses and this was developed as a priority because of how deadly this, this virus is for humans and particularly upon realizing around 2011 uh, and even from 2009 we started to see more cases identified so after 94 there was just sporadic case identification. Unfortunately, some some more fatalities occurred. And then in 2009, there was another larger disease event that involved an equine hospital and the loss of another uh, veterinarian's life. This prompted the urgent development of 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 a vaccine for horses as a sort of one health approach to protecting humans and, of course, protecting horses. It's been available since 2012 and has been used across Australia, but predominantly where there is perceived to be the greatest risk. So that's the, these areas of, of eastern Queensland and northeastern New South Wales. In the experimental trials, that vaccine of laboratory animals, that vaccine has been equally effective for Nipah virus, um, both Bangladesh strain and Malaysian strain. 
And because of the high priority of the hen nipper viruses uh, as global disease threat, there's been uh, good support and funding, particularly in the US, to see the development of that, that vaccine for humans. And that is uh, now at a point where the, where the vaccine, the, using the same mechanism, same protein, is undergoing those, those phase one human trials. And there is also a monoclonal antibody that has been developed. And it's uh, Professor Chris Broder, who is one of our wonderful co-authors and has been a huge supporter of this research from the uh, Uniform Services University of the Health Sciences in, in Bethesda, who has been the driver and, and leader of the science behind the, behind the development of the, of the vaccine and of the monoclonal antibody. And we've uh, seen that monoclonal antibody used, uh, I think, around 13 times now tends to be used on compassionate grounds, so it's not fully registered yet, but it is a life-saving treatment and has been used 13 times with great success. Uh, But it needs to be used promptly after uh, the recognition of disease, and that's why it's so important for us to recognize this disease in, in horses. So we have this vaccine, and now we have a vaccine that's in trial for, for, for people. Um, but you mentioned unvaccinated horses. Why would there be unvaccinated horses? Ah, well, that's a very good question, Sarah. So it is to do with the perception of risk, I, I guess, and that differing quite heavily between, say, a veterinarian who understands and has thought a lot about this virus, has had to really think about the this very imminent threat that can happen in an unpredictable way at an unpredictable time, could be in the middle of the night. And the veterinarians are really sort of caught between a rock and a hard place because, you know, they get the call in the middle of the night. Okay, fine if they know the property and the owner and the horses and everything quite well. Say they don't. Say they don't know the property, don't know the, the situation really very well at all. All they know is this horse is staggering around. It could just have a colic, completely not infectious, or it could have hendrovirus. If they don't go, which some veterinarians unfortunately have had to take that decision, then they uh, re- would realize that they're, they're a miss, there's a missed opportunity, if it would be Hendra, for those owners, and that might even include children, who may be quite closely exposed to the horses. As we know, horses can be, there can be great sentimental value to, to people's horses in some circumstances. They're kept for a wide variety of purposes. So the, the veterinarian is, is caught between them being sort of the only way that there can be a timely diagnosis and save people involved and their own personal risks, which, which, are, which are very many, their own personal health risks for their own family as well and for, for their liability, financial issues, workplace health and safety, uh, liability, uh, and this sort of thing. They're really, it's quite a challenging scenario, but the perception of risk is clear for the veterinarian. It's also clear for a very, very highly valuable horse where the insurance policy might say, you know, if your, if your horse does not receive the right uh, timely treatment, then we won't be able to pay, pay, pay out on loss of the horse or just someone who's got a particularly valuable horse that they, they really don't, don't, don't want to lose. And a lot of people will be, will be taking that, opting to take the vaccination. Uh, but the owner uh, is realizing that the actual likelihood of their individual horse becoming infected with Hendra virus, the, the likelihood of it becoming infected is quite low. Um, there's, there's only been, you know, 100 horses over, since we've known about this virus that, that have become infected and died there. So it is unlikely on, on the basis of probability that their individual horse will get Hendra virus. 
So they, they, they sort of realize that. There are then cost issues. Some owners will have a sort of vaccine hesitancy uh, in general. And in Australia, there is also a, an interesting thing where the owners can pick up vaccines sort of from their from non-veterinary suppliers and they don't haven't always needed to have a veterinarian administer the vaccine. So that's different in the U.S. So in the U.S. and the U.K., every horse has got a passport and the veterinarian has to come and administer the vaccine and, and write in there. And um, in the U.S., of course, you've got vaccines for West Nile virus for, for quite a bunch of, of, of diseases for horses. Whereas here, we tend really to only vaccinate in the past, before the Hendra vaccine, we really would have only vaccinated for tetanus. Some might vaccinate as well for strangles, uh, and some with breeding horses would vaccinate for equine herpes virus. But they, uh, particularly the tetanus vaccine, they can be picking this up from their feed store or pet supply store. So there's a big difference where the, where the Hendra vaccine has to be administered by a veterinarian. There are sort of cost issues, and there's this challenge where they don't really perceive, a lot of owners won't have perceived the risk as being very direct or very probable. Uh, and it's, it's hard for them to realize that risk matrix where even though it's a low likelihood, if it's a really high consequence and fatal, it's still high risk. So a lot of owners will not understand the, the justification in getting vaccinated. And that's why it's been so important to, to educate them on, on the risks and where there is a risk as well. I see. Okay. Are there particular flying foxes causing these transmissions? This is a really interesting question, Sarah. So after they identified the reservoir host of Hendra virus being teropid flying foxes, there was efforts to identify the distribution and, you know, which flying foxes carried the virus. So serology has consistently shown that all of the four main species of flying foxes that we have on mainland Australia, the black flying fox, the grey-headed flying fox, the little red flying fox, and the spectacle flying fox, all have immunity, seropositivity to the Hendra virus G glycoprotein, so the one our, our, the, that our vaccine is made of. So the, the serology would suggest that they all have carry the virus, and, and could, be, could be shedding the virus and the spillover could come from all of them. So initially, it was thought that wherever there was flying foxes in Australia, there was a risk for Hendra virus. But over time, there was a failure to identify Hendra-diseased horses, Hendra-infected horses, outside of the range of the black flying fox and the spectacle flying fox. So even though... Uh, not only had the serology shown that it was in the other species, but there had been isolation uh, and, and molecular detection of Hendra virus in the grey-headed flying fox, for example. The detection of the horses with being infected had only occurred in those areas where the black flying fox is circulating and is living. And that is an area that has extended over time. We might talk more about that if you're interested. But it is, is Queensland, uh, in the, the, the eastern, the coastal areas of Queensland, so the northeast of Australia, and the northeastern uh, region of New South Wales, so the next state down. So coastal, tropical, and subtropical regions on our east coast. And, of course, this is also where there are plenty of horses living as well. The other thing that added to what we now see as a misnomer that 
the distribution of Hendra spillover w- was limited to there, was that there had been a failure to detect Hendra virus in the urine of flying foxes. So some researchers, uh, including some of the wonderful bat one health researchers on this paper, Raina Plowright and Alison Thiel, have been collecting urine from underneath the roost of the, of the bat with a big plastic sheet. And so there'd been a failure to identify by a PCR Hendra virus in that urine when it was outside of that, that region as well. So this was sort of adding to the evidence that maybe the, the spillover, for some unknown reason, might have only occurred from the black flying fox and the, the, the spectacle flying fox. Uh, but what our paper shows is that there was a, an equivalent virus sufficiently divergent in its genotype sequence, around 15% difference there, to fail detection on the, on the established PCR, but sufficiently conserved in its form and function. So, so much less variation in its translated amino acid sequence. And importantly, no difference, no change at all in the critical epitope on that receptor binder protein and no difference in the observed disease uh, as well. So we're, we're talking about an equivalent virus that was missing the molecular surveillance. Okay, that's very interesting. The way horses are sometimes tested involves dead-end testing if the horse is negative for um, hendavirus. But are there dangers in this? Thanks, Sarah. This is another very good question. So Australia is not unique in its animal health surveillance and its approach to disease management and biosecurity in focusing on a select few, in in a way, well-established diseases. So this is really the challenge globally all for animal health. We sort of know a lot about a range of diseases and we have tests that are really reliable in detecting those diseases. And that is important because it helps us to give rapid, confident diagnostic answers to guide the health of animals, biosecurity of of our countries, trade agreements, and the health of humans when, when we're talking about a zoonotic disease. The challenge is that we are realizing over time that there is a a much greater range of organisms out there and we are only really looking at the tip of the iceberg. It's an important tip. The tips of the icebergs that we've been looking at are very important because they are the ones that over all of time we have understood are causing significant disease. But there is, uh, with the evolution of molecular techniques, next generation sequencing, whole genome sequencing techniques, open-ended diagnostic approaches, we are realizing that there is a far greater biodiversity there and that that is also very important to understanding health and disease. So yes, it has been necessary that the test is really specific and reliable and can give a very quick conclusive answer of whether or not a horse has hendrovirus. But this study has really highlighted for this context, and of course, by analogy, many others, that it's also very important that we consider divergent disease agents and emerging disease agents and have additional testing approaches uh, when, when indicated. The challenge is when do we do that? 
What's the justification for that diagnostic responsibility to go beyond beyond what we know? Looking at your study now, uh, what time period were you looking at? The time period that we were focusing on with our cases was really from 2015 to 2018. Our study actually was conceived and began in 2014 off the back of my experiences with Australian bat lithovirus and the detection of that virus, which is relative of rabies virus, in its first time being detected in domestic mammals. So it had only previously been detected in bats and then had caused three human fatalities. So off the back of those important cases, two horses dying of that, and communicating, sort of interpreting the science, writing that up with Peter Reed, as well as as many wonderful scientists from the state laboratories and, and national labs, I became familiar with some incredible virologists, particularly uh, Dr. Ina Smith, that were looking into the, the wider diversity of, of bat-borne viruses. And we were sort of realizing that they had a lot more viruses than the disease significance was known for. And as veterinarians, we had a lot more severe concerning cases than were getting diagnoses. And so it was really a matchup of that. And so by 2015, We had the support of the Australian veterinarians and particularly the Queensland State Laboratory, Biosecurity Sciences Laboratory and their their biosecurity department. We were beginning the sample bank of sort of rescued samples after they'd gone through their window of sort of investigations within the usual system and with the usual tests. And on that note, what is different about how you suggest surveillance be done? I think that the key difference is that we need to incorporate active surveillance activities in addition to passive disease reporting and investigation, and that we involve very much transdisciplinary teams, involve the researchers so that we're getting that cutting-edge forefront approaches from each of the relevant disciplines and sort of combining that in constructive, proactive ways with the routine government-based disease surveillance. And it's very challenging to do this, but this study can highlight that it can be done and can be very successful. And the active surveillance activity here might be described in a technical way as risk-based because we were sort of focusing on the, the most concerning cases both targeted and general. So we, we were targeting uh, with some of our approaches a range of related viruses, but we also had an open-ended aspect to our approach. And so we could detect completely novel viruses. And sentinel, because we are detecting, like the canary in the mine, you know, we're detecting something earlier than it would otherwise be detected and giving that early warning for, for One Health and animal biosecurity benefits. These sort of active surveillance initiatives can be coupled and integrated with the routine surveillance and disease management approaches that happen in a government-run laboratory. If you have the right framework, network, and funding and collaboration to enable that to happen. Importantly, while protecting all of those things that are so important to keep the engagement from those stakeholders at ground level, those to whom the horse matters most, the owners and the vets, so they have to be confident that by engaging with that surveillance system, they're not going to have 
too much burden and negative repercussions. And so we focused on that as well. So, you know, leaving the sensitive information with that state lab and just taking what we needed to do the research and then giving back to the state labs updated assays, updated information, updated capacity. So you had an unusual surveillance um, employed to detect this case in your study. Is, is sort of that everything you just talked about, how you went about detecting this case? Yeah, we gave a pretty good summary. Um, there has been a lot of talk about, well, I should just say that another form of active surveillance has been sort of wildlife surveillance. So a lot of the time, and we've talked a bit about that through this interview as well. So your under roost testing of urine is an active surveillance activity, again, designed to guide routine surveillance. There's been a lot of talk about the benefits of interdisciplinarity, transdisciplinary approaches, uh, both in research and in surveillance generally, including in the government sector. I really like the term convergence and convergence research, which is something that the United States research bodies have highlighted is, is should be a big aim now since 2016. And actually the, the term convergence, it really sums up that transdisciplinary approach that's drawing from deep within each discipline that's relevant to the problem, to usually to a vexing problem, persistently over time and reviewing their focus on that problem over time. So sort of inquiry-focused or hypothesis-driven research that is transdisciplinary, not just the benefit of the junction and meeting of the disciplines, but actually forming those interdisciplinary teams and drawing from deep within them to use our best tools towards a vexing problem that is a real significance for society. Now, briefly, uh, tell us about your study and why you did it. So we called it Horses as Sentinels for Emerging Infectious Diseases. And as I mentioned, it really came out of my personal experiences on the farm, that ground-level experience, with the detections of Australian batlisser virus, so a, a relative of rabies virus there in horses. And then, as a result of that, meeting with the bat virologist, including Dr. Ina Smith, and also being connected very generously with Dr. Peter Reed, who extended his support to me when he heard about the detection. And he knew firsthand, of course, what it could be like to consider such a diagnosis. And so from that, we formed a group, initially the three of us. We found great support within the state laboratory and amongst our colleagues as veterinarians who saw this problem and felt it firsthand as well. So then we formed a team, and, and Dr. Chris Broder was a key founding member as well there of that team. And we basically were looking to resolve that hypothesis. Could there be similar viruses closely related, likely, to Hendra virus, causing Hendra virus-like disease in Australian horses, posing similar zoonotic human health risks, but failing detection by our routine surveillance? And that was our hypothesis, and we, we looked to resolve that by extending the known assays, developing new assays, both serology approaches, where we use some innovative approaches, such as using both the uh, nucleocapsid proteins, which are far more conserved, so actually looking for cross-reactivity, as well as uh, more specific proteins like the, the G-glycoprotein or the receptor binder protein, and then using the latest, best methods of Bayesian latent class analysis, information theory, approaches to epidemiology and to, to test performance to interpret those results 
because of course we were we were sort of forging ahead a new path here and there wasn't always going to be a gold standard reference test to check out our work with so we were using these novel assays as tools interpreting them as best we could and on the molecular side we have a lot of challenges there for viral discovery when it comes to open-ended uh, next-generation sequencing because the actual amount of genetic material in the sample, particularly a clinical sample of variable quality, will be at most in an infected animal 1%. So you really are looking for a needle in a haystack. The RNA itself is very, very fragile. So we have to really take care of the samples, keep them at negative 80, think about the biosafety issues, and then develop a pipeline. We tried viral enrichment methods as part of our extraction. But in the end, we found a, a great high-throughput extraction approach and coupled up with the leaders in that sort of research, particularly Dr. John Sebastian Eden, who had been working with Eddie Holmes around that, the full viral diversity, but also with pediatricians, Professor Cheryl Jones and Dr. Philip Britton, that had done very similar research in children looking for novel causes of encephalitis in Australia. So we sort of formed a team, and then there was a lot of early career members of our team as well that joined, and we sort of focused on this issue, kept revising our approaches, and also gaining funding. So we had uh, various sources of funding, philanthropic donation from the Delara Foundation, for Horse and Human Health, which was our big opportunity to develop all those assays, trial our approaches. And once we had some initial findings, particularly serology findings, that this was likely to be, a, that the hypothesis was correct, that there was other concerning viruses, of course, communicated that with our government's approval to our veterinarians, so they became aware. But everyone realized we had to keep going and try to get that molecular evidence. And so we were very... Uh, grateful that our national uh, government agency uh, recognized the value in this research and funded it as part of their biosecurity innovation program. We then used all our approaches that we developed on our 300 most priority, highest suspect cases from a biobank of 1,700 cases. And that effort happened in 2020-2021. And uh, we had the viral discovery here in, in January 21st, 2021. My, my son's birthday, actually. And then uh, on, I think, the 24th of February, we had communicated to the government agencies everything about the finding and the interpretation as well of the, the expected vaccine efficacy being equal, thanks to the amazing collaboration afforded through Chris Broder with Kai Zhu, uh, who was able to model the, the protein based on our sequence. And then we were able, sometime in March, to notify veterinarians and the public via a media release we had also shared the capacity for the updated testing to the state and national laboratories for animal and human health. And it, quite incredibly, in uh, October, prior to the ultimate publication in your wonderful journal, so we, were, we did host the, the manuscript in preprint as well you know, on Biorix IV to get it to make sure everyone could read it while it was going through the rigorous process of peer review which I commend your journal on again. You have wonderful reviewers. They were uh, really engaging and, and, and wonderful. And we then found that there was another prospect of case detection, so a contemporary detection of a, of a case. And it was the furthest south, actually, near Newcastle, so further south than ever before. And it was of this novel previously unrecognized hendrovirus variant genotype, now called hendrovirus G2. 
so extraordinary to see that happen as well in the timeline and a great example of the benefits of proactive, transdisciplinary, convergent research that is supporting the government sector and routine surveillance. And why is this all so important? For us, it was so important because of the very real risk for our colleagues, the veterinarians on the front line. It is just really difficult for the veterinarians that while the chances of a single individual horse or an individual farm or individual owner experiencing hendra infection and being confronted by that, that deadly risk, for veterinarians, it's really not at all such a low probability. They are spending their time going around and seeing all the sick horses in the area and having to treat them sometimes in the middle of the night, sometimes without any prior knowledge of, of the likelihood of Hendra spilling over on that particular property due to, say, you know, flowering trees or waterways or bat roosting areas. So it's very, very difficult. And that was really our justification. It was about saving the lives of our colleagues and of those that love working and caring for horses in Australia. So that's why it's been important to us. But of course, then uh, we realized over time that the research had a a broader importance uh, that can extend from routine surveillance and and give back to it. Looking back, it, it seems to be a really good example of convergence research, of active surveillance activities coupled with routine surveillance. But I mean, it's important to realize that Peter Reed and I didn't really know the meaning of any of these terms when we set out on our journey. We see that they apply now, having studied epidemiology in my case, and him having come all the way along this journey. But for us, it was just about making the job safer. We've actually seen a lot of veterinarians leaving equine practice just because of this region or going and practicing somewhere where they thought that there was negligible risk for Hendra which is a shame for everybody, for the horses, for the vets, everybody. Yeah, and very sadly, we've also seen a loss of the relationship between owners and vets. The relationship between horse owners and, and, and vets is different in, for different horses and in different countries, and they're all unique, but, but we had something special here as a relationship between, between veterinarians and, and, and horse owners and, and horse trainers and horse uh, carers and, and breeders, and, and that relationship has has suffered uh, due to the challenges in managing Hendra and the difference in perceived risk and the perceived pressures to vaccinate and all this sort of thing. Yeah, that is a shame. Are there environmental factors that are affecting the spread of this virus? So the the distribution of the flying foxes has been changing uh, over time and also the pressure on the flying foxes. The main reason for this and anthropogenic causes, so you know, human-related causes, uh, particularly uh, land clearing, both for development of housing and also for, for farming. And, and that has meant that those crucial East Coast forests, coastal forests that have got those native blossoms that the flying foxes seek have greatly diminished. And actually, we, this is all stuff I've learned from these incredible uh, flying fox researchers, such as Ali, Ali Peel and Rena Plowright on the paper. It's not just like any tree would work for them. They really were uh, used to be quite nomadic, so they would go up and down the, the coast with the seasons, and they'd actually visit particular species of flowering trees. So we've also had bushfires, and there's been a lot of changes, even changes in the climate and microclimates. Really, they have changed the way that the flying foxes are living and where they're living. So the black flying foxes have been coming south 
also the grey flying foxes. We, we now have flying foxes in in our most southern areas and even black flying foxes, which traditionally or typically were not coming so far south, are coming uh, all the way down as well in some numbers, while the numbers will, will remain higher further up. We're seeing that sort of change and also the way that they're living, so that they're living now in larger roosts and really close to cities. So they're, they're living on, let's say, the outskirts of, of cities or even in the middle of, of little towns, and they're less nomadic. So they may see each other. Populations would, would meet perhaps less, less frequently. And again, the seasons themselves will influence that. So 2011, we had an extraordinary number of spillover events occur that year, unprecedented number of individual spillover events to horses of Hendra virus. And uh, one theory would be that Bats that hadn't seen each other for a while had caught up the populations there, and then that virus had sort of spread around them. Certainly, they're also sometimes less well-nourished than they were in the past. They may be, uh, in fact, more likely to visit and use as food sources the trees in the gardens of homes, in cities, and in sort of commercial fruit-type orchards, and in the trees where, you know, where horses are living that aren't native. That type of thing is happening and these apparently are not their preferred foods, and so they can also be quite stressed, and they have also had heat waves. So there's a lot of influences, and we're just beginning to understand all that, but it's incredible to watch the research that people like Alison Peel and Raina Plowright have been doing on, on that. Do you have any recommendations for further investigations? We have some proposals in to do further research on the, the viruses we've found. So we have found some additional paramyxoviruses that we're working on interpreting that are more divergent than this one, but seem to have been found in diseased horses and have also been found in, in flying foxes. So we're, we're looking to, to investigate those viruses with some further research. We are also definitely, as far as recommendations as well, is, is involving veterinarians on the front line in research and involving you know, wildlife and ecology and researchers in research. And so really enacting the One Health aims in a very meaningful way by, and it's not easy to do. So I think there's got to be a lot of thought on how to do that, including funding and also making sure that we meet the various aims of the different disciplines while also meeting a common aim. Um, actually, I drew quite a lot in, in my research inspiration from my wife, who is a ethnographic anthropologist. Um, so again, they're very different disciplines, but there is incredible benefit to, to considering what is valuable from a very broad range of perspectives to a problem like this. Tell us about your job, what you do and how you got there and what you like most about it. Well, I definitely thought of myself as an equine veterinarian. I, I've been practicing as a, an equine veterinarian in, in England and a little bit in France and in all the three eastern states of Australia since 2007. And I absolutely love horses and uh, really enjoy working with horse owners and carers and, and producers and breeders and trainers and just the breadth of the purpose of the horse. I really enjoy that job. Because of this research, I was obliged to uh, study epidemiology and, and I gained a qualification in that. Also to study virology and pathology and I felt I probably should put some of that stuff to use and uh, really um, pleased to have been uh, employed by the, the same federal department of agriculture, water and the environment that funded our research here in a very exciting role that sort of is sitting within their epidemiology and One Health section, but also engaging with a very uh, promising section that they have 
that is all about uh, biosecurity strategy and reform. And so, so this new role is, is really an exciting opportunity for me perhaps to try to integrate some of the perspectives we gained through this research into other disease scenarios for the benefit of animal health and One Health and our nation's biosecurity. And what part of Australia do you live in? I know um, you're teaching in Sydney. And what are your, some of your favorite activities there? Right. So I was born in Sydney as it happened, but I grew up in Queensland. But I met my wife in Sydney and we've raised our children there. But recently we've moved to the Great Ocean Roads. So my roles at the Sydney and for the Federal Department are, are remote, which is, which is lovely to be able to be around the, the, the children as much as possible. And, and actually, you know, my eldest son is only seven years old, so he doesn't really know what it would be like to have me as his dad without this enormous research project. So I'm really looking forward to spending more time with, with my kids. And, and they're just wonderful kids, two boys there. So we live on the, in a little town called Aries Inlet on the Great Ocean Road, and it's uh, called the Surf Coast, and it, it is some of the best surf in Australia. So I, I love surfing and the, and the sea and the water, but I also love working with horses, and my wife made sure I've downsized my herd a little bit, so I've only got, I think, six left now. I had 24 at one point, but, but I love, love seeing them every day. I also uh, love brass instruments, the trombone, the cornet, and... Uh, even the flugerbone and jazz. You play those? Yeah, yeah. Nice, nice jazz. Yeah, I, I play in a folk orchestra, not even remotely similar, but... Uh... I think that my, my playing developed alongside my research as a little bit of a, what do they say, for mental health. Oh, absolutely. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk with me today, Dr. Anand. Oh, it was an absolute pleasure, Sarah. We covered a lot of ground, but the one thing we probably missed out on was just the gratitude to each and every one of those co-authors, and particularly my co-lead author, Bethany Horsberg, who is an incredible early career scientist who made this discovery possible. And thanks for joining me out there. You can read the March 2022 article, Novel Hendrovirus Variant Detected by Sentinel Surveillance of Horses in Australia, online at cdc.gov EID. I'm Sarah Gregory for Emerging Infectious Diseases. For the most accurate health information, visit cdc.gov or call 1-800-CDC-INFO.